Hi, my name is David Boeren and I work as a science programmer at Studium Generale. We humans are under the impression that we make all of our choices ourselves. But there are voices in science that argue that our actions are mere calculations of personality traits, unconscious associations and hidden brain processes. Dr. Lika Asma therefore visited us to talk about free will. Because is everything already determined for us? Lika Asma is a philosopher and a psychologist. Last year she published Mijn Intenties en Ik, Philosophie van de Vrije Wil, which translates as My Intentions and Me, Philosophy of the Free Will. It was nominated for several Dutch research prizes. She's currently working at the Munich School of Philosophy, conducting research on implicit biases. Is free will an illusion? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to give a talk here on uh, free will. So is free will an illusion? Um, well, very good question. Um, yeah, so as Lenya already pointed out, a lot of um, uh, neuroscientific and psychological research has been conducted in, in the last four decades that may suggest that free will is an illusion, that we may have the experience of um, acting freely, deciding for ourselves what to do, but then in fact uh, unconscious brain uh, activity makes the decisions for us or uh, unconscious influences on our choices. Uh, and what I will do, will do today is actually a lot of philosophy, because in my view um, the, the reasoning behind the, the, these uh, findings, so the reasoning from um, the results of these experiments to the conclusion that free will is an illusion, depends a lot on your um, well philosophy, on your framework, uh, on the way you think about causation, for example, um, the way you think about what free will is, um, and what determinism is, for example, whether determinism is true. So I think we should start with discussing these concepts and. I will um, mainly defend my own framework, so my own view on what um, makes our actions and our decisions special in a way that I think that we can, um, that at least it would be useful to uh, hold on to some notion of free will. And I hope at the end of this talk it will also be clear what I mean by free will. And well, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on this, of course. So. Um, interesting, the, what is so interesting about the discussion on free will is that uh, even, even I, who, have, who has studied free will for, um, I think, more than 10 years, <laughs> and I'm still interested in that, so that's quite interesting already, uh, is that we kind of keep switching from the, the more deterministic, scientific, third-person perspective to a more first-person perspective in which we just have this obvious experience of being able to choose what to do. So um, if I have to make a choice, so for example, I received an email to give a talk here, or um, I, I get a job offer or something like that, doesn't really happen in philosophy, but it could happen uh, in theory. I feel like I could choose. I don't have the feeling that something else is making this choice for me and that I have alternative possibilities. But if I, especially if I look at other people, um, and especially when they make mistakes, I tend to take a more third-personal scientific perspective and think, well, this person had a difficult childhood, um, the circumstances were very difficult, uh, maybe there are, there are genetic explanations of, of the choice this person made. So I, even I keep switching between these different perspectives. And actually, uh, experimental philosophy, so experimental philosophy is a quite new field in philosophy in which um, people try to uh, investigate um, like lay folk intuitions about concepts like free will or determinism or morality or all kinds of subjects that are central in philosophy because they are worried that um, we rely too much on intuitions of philosophers so they they want to know what intuitions of other people are and what is so interesting about this um, uh, experimental philosophy on free will is that People, and also about more responsibility, which is often um, very tightly connected in the philosophical literature, is that people tend to, um, their verdicts, whether people are um, morally responsible for what they do or whether they freely chose what to do, 
strongly depends on how you fra frame the case. So, um, for example, if you trigger uh, empathy, then people are more um, um, tempted to not blame people. But if you um, well emphasize that the the way in which victims were hurt, then people tend to say, well, you are responsible. So what I try to do in my uh, research is to really look at what actions and decisions are and see whether they are special, special enough to um, talk about or to refer to them in a, in a sense that they are free or that they are self-determined. And well, as I already said, I think um, there is a sense in which our decisions and actions are special and it is um, valuable to use the term free will for them. Um, yeah, so I will start by uh, giving um, the two conditions that are um, often central in the discussion of free will. So the first condition is alternative possibilities. So especially traditionally, free will is seen as um, um, necessarily incompatible with determinism. So the idea is that if uh, the past and the laws of nature together completely determine uh, what our current situation is. So if we would um, have an, a, a complete picture of uh, the state of affairs, for example, um, a thousand years ago, and we know all the laws of nature, then we would exactly know what is happening right now. And if that's true, well, then determinism is true, and then we don't really have alternative possibilities. I could have the impression that I could have decided to have coffee or no drink at all or tea, but this is just an illusion. In reality, there's just um, this ongoing um, uh, movement through the world and I, I'm just one small object within it and I have no choice of my own. Well, and interestingly, um, recently there's been a survey, there, they often do surveys among academic philosophers, and most philosophers, I think 61% or something, are compatibilists. And compatibilists think that determinism doesn't matter for free will. So even if determinism is true, even if the past and the laws of nature completely determine where we are right now, even then it could have been my own choice to give this talk. So I will say a bit more about that later, but just to give you... Um, um, yeah, make clear what my position is. I think, uh, in the end, um, determinism would be a problem for free will, but of course, as a philosopher, I have to add to that, that depends on how you define determinism and free will. More about that. So what is really important is that often people think that, especially so I, I, I tell you, well, I'm a libertarian, I don't think that determinism and free will are compatible, I think that Free will exists and determinism is not true. Um, most people then immediately think, oh, you think that we shouldn't be influenced by anything, that we should decide out of nowhere, that we shouldn't, um, yeah, be, our decisions shouldn't be caused by any state of affairs in the world, but that's absolutely not true. So libertarians don't think that our decisions have to come out of nowhere, because if my decision um, to give this talk would come out of nowhere, I wouldn't be in control of my life. So there has to be a sense in which I um, can say, well, uh, I find this important, I find this good to do, um, uh, I find this interesting, I enjoy doing this. So there is some sense in which, if we really want to talk about self-determination, about making my own choices, I have to um, use the information in the world. So, for example, if I have a job interview and um, it's raining and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be influenced by anything, I'm going to decide by myself, then I will be completely wet at the job interview, which will not be good for my chances, I imagine. So, um, what libertarians mainly emphasize, but also compatibilists, is again that there's something special about our actions and our decisions that, for example, rocks and leaves do not have. So there's something in our relationship to the world, in the way we respond to the facts, that is different from just being pushed off a hill or, or um, uh, trembling or something like that. So that's a, that's a crucial point. So the doors, I mainly use the doors to emphasize that blind choice without any information is not choice. It's, it's not free will. It doesn't have anything to do with um, determining for myself what to do. So that brings me to the second condition for free will, which is self-determination, and that's actually the most difficult part. So the part about determinism, in reality, we don't really know 
whether determinism is true, or at least, well, there's some people say, like, un universal determinism is not true. For example, if we look at the lowest level in physics, that's, um, 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 we cannot find uh, um, determination there, but this is an open discussion, so I'm not going to rely on this. And what is more important is that I think uh, we are talking about psychology, so we are not talking about physics, we are talking about our decisions and our actions. So the question would be, is determinism true on this level? Do we have psychological laws that are, well, that really determine what we do? And well, I think we don't have reason to think that this is true, but um, well, this is an ongoing discussion and I think it would be interesting to see where, um, yeah, where we end up and how we think about determinism in a couple of uh, years, actually. So, but the main point here is, I think that the discussion about determinism is probably less interesting if we talk about free will, because we really should be th talking about what it means to self-determine what you do. So even if I would have, or there would be alternative possibilities, so for example, I um, walk uh, somewhere in the woods and I'm encountered with a bear, uh, it might be possible on a physical, biological level that I either flee or fight or freeze, but of course, that's not my decision if it's just a biological, physical process. So we have to uh, have some account of what it means to, um, well, self-determine for me to decide what to do. And yeah, well, that's the, the million-dollar question in, in the philosophy of free will. How should we understand this self-determination? Um, and in my view, we need a different kind of framework than the framework that is, um, well, maybe implicitly accepted in psychology. I'm not completely sure about this, but at least the framework that is, um, um, well, underlying, I think, a lot of our reasoning about psychology. So let me make a start with that. Um, this is the theory of planned behavior. This is a very uh, popular theory in psychology. Um, it's, well, it's been cited a lot and it's constantly uh, being used again for, for research. And the idea of the theory of planned behavior is that we can predict or explain whether people will perform certain behavior, for, for example, whether they will train for a marathon or um, whether they will um, recycle or something like that. And the idea is that if we uh, measure the attitude, so the attitude is some, how we feel about something, so do I have positive feelings or, or do I value uh, running a marathon? Uh, the subjective norm, which is more about um, how I feel important people uh, think about um, running a marathon. So do my parents think it's a good idea? Do my friends think it's a good idea? Uh, things like that. And then finally, be perceived behavioral control. So to what extent do I have the feeling that I could run a marathon, that I have the ability to do it? And the idea is that these three, um, well, psychological states uh, cause an intention. So then if I have a positive attitude, I think my friends think it's a good idea and I have the feeling, well, I'm capable of running a marathon, then I form an intention to run a marathon and then I will in fact start training for a marathon. So in philosophy, we would call this last thing uh, action. In philosophy, we find it very important to make a distinction between behavior, which is like um, things that just happen to me, uh, like falling down or running over something or <laughs> all these things that, that I don't really have an intention to do. And the things that I have an intention to do, that I do intentionally, are actions. So that's important to keep in mind. I will come back to that later. So this is a typical picture of um, many psychological theories. So it's not, uh, I don't, and I don't really have a problem with this theory, by the way, but um, it, it paints a picture of uh, causal chains, of events causing other events, uh, causing the final event, which is an action. And once we accept this picture, uh, and then we're already assuming that um, attitudes and subjective norms and perceived behavioral controls are like mental objects causing other mental objects, so that's already an, another assumption that's, that's central in the theory. Um, but once we accept this model in, in, with these uh, metaphysical or philosophical assumptions, it becomes very hard to um, locate some sort of self-determination. So there might be some options. We could say, well, there's some self-determination before, so I can decide for myself whether I 
have a positive attitude towards running a marathon, or I can um, decide how I feel, how I think other people will feel about um, uh, running a marathon, and I could influence my perceived behavior control. Uh, but this is not. Um, this, this doesn't really make a lot of sense, because as um, Isaac Eitzen also says, these attitudes, subjective norms, and perceived behavioral control have other causes. They don't come out of nowhere, and we cannot just make them up. So uh, whether I feel positive about running a marathon and whether I feel capable of doing so uh, depends on my genes, my socioeconomic circumstances, the beliefs I have, my education, my upbringing. So within this model, um, it doesn't make any sense to locate self-determination before this whole psychological process. That's, there are just other causes. It doesn't, there's, no really, there's not really room for me to contribute anything. So some other options would be to um, loosen the, the strength between like, my positive attitude towards running a marathon and my intention and my behavior. So that would be uh, uh, something like this. We cut these um, causal chains and we, we uh, make room for alternative possibilities. So we make room for freedom, for, for options. But here, um, the perspective of the compatibilist becomes really important because the compatibilist would say, that doesn't make any sense at all. I have a positive attitude towards running a marathon. And then it's random whether I also form the intention to do, uh, to do so, so or, or there's some sort of weak link between the two, and even worse, I form the intention to um, uh, run a marathon, and then it's just random whether I will actually run one, whether I, in fact, uh, perform the action. So just loosening um, these connections will not give me any self-determination, any control over what I do. This will just weaken the link between what I care about, what my intentions are, and what I, uh, in fact, end up doing. So. Within this model, I don't see any way to um, account for free will. But that's, well, I'm, I may have high standards because, well, a lot of compatibilists would say this is fine. This is exactly what free will is. But my problem, I think, becomes clear if we would co compare um, this model of human action to a model like um, falling leaves. So we can also um, create a similar model for um, um, how the, the falling of leaves can be explained. So uh, in the psychological story, we have an attitude, subjective norm, blah, blah, causes an intention, which causes the behavior. But in um, this example of leaves falling off the tree, we have a similar causal chain. We have cooler temperatures, shorter days, uh, which leads to a reduction of the hormone auxin, and then in combination with the wind, the leaves will fall off the tree. So we have the same causal chain, and well, if we don't think of that as free will, or <laughs> if we think of that as free will, then why isn't the tree shedding its leaves out of free will? That there, there must be something um, different about the two um, models, if we would want to account for um, the existence of free will. Um, yeah, so what is... Crucial, I think, is this underlying uh, causal picture, which I already emphasized a little bit. But this is this picture of, um, well, event causation, so to say. So there are uh, some events, they lead to different events, and these lead to different events. So this is really this determinist picture of uh, causation, that things just happen. So we have a state, a state of affairs in the world, we have the laws of nature, and then this combination just leads to different steps. There's no um, goal-directedness or meaning or um, a, any influence or anything that could change this other than randomness. And in this view, causation is blind. So certain events simply cause other events. It's just the way things go. There's no, um, yeah, no, no room for any, any goal-directedness or anything like that. And what is interesting is that this picture of event causation has um, become kind of generally accepted um, in, in, um, in the modern times, so when also uh, modern physics with Newton um, evolved or, or de was developed. And philosophers just felt like 
all causation is just event causation. Also, in light of this idea that God should not be seen as one of the um, explanatory factors in, in what the world is like. So we just have things happening and the, they, these things cause other th things to happen. So in that sense, the modern philosophers, so I'm talking about um, 17th, 18th uh, century mainly, um, started to reject um, Aristotle's idea of uh, four different causes. And, and this is just one model of causation. We can even uh, discuss other ones. But at least um, Aristotle said, well, event causation, so things happening, causing other things happening, is just one type of causation. There's also material causation, so what something is made of. So for example, um, a wooden um, table is, um, is also caused in some sense by the wood, the material that it's made of. Another one is formal causation, um, which determines the form or essence. I will come back to that later. So um, in my view, actions have a specific form or essence because they are formally caused by um, practical knowledge. And uh, finally, we have final causation, in which the purpose um, uh, plays a causal role as well. So in this um, more complex model of causation, there's room for goals, um, playing a causal role, there's, there's room for material playing a causal role, and there are also specific forms, so specific processes. Not everything is just uh, causal chains of, of um, events. And in recent years, this picture of causation, so this more plural picture of causation, has really um, yeah, gained attention again. So people started to realize that this event causal model has limitations and that it um, cannot really explain all kinds of causations and all the ways we talk about um, things causing other things or, or forms causing other forms. So that's, that's also, I think, well, if, if, if there's one thing I really want to um, um, bring forth with this talk, it is that we should think more about what we mean when we talk about causation and we, that we should also... Um, yeah, de develop a more plural perspective on what we uh, mean when we talk about causation and what causation could be. So in this um, approach, the final cause um, in, in, for example, run, uh, training for a marathon would not be, uh, oh, I just trained for a marathon because I have the intention to do so or because I have a positive attitude towards it. But I train, for, uh, I train tomorrow or today in order to run a marathon next September. So there's a different kind of um, uh, relationship. So the goal, which is running a marathon in September, causes me to um, currently run a marathon. And now a lot of... Um, until now, well, the, the, the tables are turning a little bit, but the idea has often been that we can easily account for this within the model of the theory of planned behavior. So within this model, we can account for this in-order thing, because this in-order thing is just part of the intention that event causes the uh, action. So um, I just have this intention to run a marathon next September, and that is an event that I form this intention, and that causes another event, namely that I start training. But that doesn't work. And the reason is uh, the problem of deviant causal chains. And the problem of devi deviant causal chains is easiest explained by giving an example. So uh, there's an example by uh, Donald Davidson, who's actually a defender of this causal model of action. But he says, well, we have one problem. Um, and he... he um, he developed this idea in the 70s, and well, we still haven't found an answer, so that's one of the reasons why I think we will never find an answer to this problem. So the problem is this. Um, imagine that you're uh, on a mountain with a friend, and this friend fell down, and you are holding on to this person um, yeah, for dear life, uh, to the rope. And then you suddenly realize that you start slipping. So you realize that you don't have the um, strength to save yourself and your friend. So you form the intention to let go of the rope. But uh, this intention or this, this um, yeah, realization that you have, that you, you form this intention, 
uh, startles you so that you let go of the rope accidentally. So this example is meant to show that sometimes intentions cause um, behavior, but the behavior is in fact not an action. So it cannot be the case that this whole model makes the distinction between actions and mere behaviors. There has to be something else. And one common response would be, well, yeah, but in this case, the nervousness was in between. So there was, um, um, there was an intention, and then uh, something else happened, and then uh, I performed, or there was an accident, and that's why it was an accident. But we have to realize that the reasoning is backwards here, because sometimes, even when I'm nervous, I could think, oh, well, I really have to let go of the rope now. Maybe I will change my mind, and then I will die. So I really have to um, let go of the rope now. And the problem with this line of reasoning is, is that we take what the person is in fact doing, so letting go of the rope, and the nature of this thing as a starting point to adapt the causal chain so that it fits um, our verdict that we already made that what the person did was an action and not a behavior. So what follows from this is that actions in comparison to behaviors have a unique um, character. There is something unique about actions compared to behaviors. And just to... Um, um, because sometimes the, the, the criticism would be, well, yeah, but this is just um, the correct picture for behavior so or for action, so maybe we should, um, uh, well, be skeptical about this, because why would we think that we need such a different way of causation specifically for actions? But the same um, uh, line of reasoning also um, applies to biological processes. So when we talk about trees, we also say, well, the tree sheds leaves in order to survive cold or dry weather. And it adapts the things it does in order to be able to survive. So also there, there's this um, teleology, te <laughs> teleology, as people say, that there is this goal, and that goal determines what uh, is going on, at least to some extent. And this um, has been argued for by Michael Thompson in 2008, so it's not really recent anymore. So I will um, uh, just read out the quote. In a description, oh, I can do it like this, right. In a description of photosynthesis, for example, we read of one chemical process followed by another, and then another. Having read along a bit with mounting enthusiasm, we can ask, what, and what happens next? If we are stuck with chemical and physical categories, the only answer will be, well, it depends on whether an H-bomb goes off, or the temperature plummets towards absolute zero, or it all falls into a fat of sulfuric acid. That a certain enzyme will appear and split the latest chemical product into two is just one among many possibilities. Physics and chemistry, adequately developed, can tell you what happens in any of these circumstances, in any circumstance, but it seems that they cannot attach any sense to a question, what happens next? So the point of this quote is that photosynthesis is a process with a beginning and an end, and it's, it's moving towards um, uh, an end point, and it's not just a succession of chemical and physical events. And in order to make sense of this, in, or, in order to make sense of this in ordered relation, um, we need to uh, introduce uh, final causation. So we need to introduce this idea that goals um, uh, contribute to um, uh, what is going on. And well, in my view, this cannot be accounted for in a, in a model in which just one event causes another event. So then, uh, back to self-determination. So what then is special about our actions? And what is, um, in what sense could we think, well, there's, there's something so special about our actions and, and decisions that we could use some sort of, um, um, that some sort of account of free will would be applicable. Um, and for this, in order to um, uh, analyze this, I take as a starting point the view that, well, actually many philosophers share that free will, if it exists, has to do with acting for reasons. So it, it would have to do with the fact that we can intelligently respond to the circumstances and that we can, um, well, shape our lives ourselves because we have this intelligent response to the circumstances. 
And in order to develop this view, I uh, will use the work of um, Elizabeth Anscombe. She's a philosopher, a, an English philosopher, and she is part of the wartime quartets. And these are four women in, um, in England who, during the Second World War, had more time to, um, well, at least uh, <laughs> more room to uh, um, develop and present their own views. And one of the major um, um, characteristics of this group is that they try to make philosophy more practical. So often uh, philosophy is very abstract, but they really want to show that, for example, actions, we shouldn't think of these things as very abstract happenings that we can measure uh, with, with brain scans or things like that, but that happen in the real world and that we always recognize in the real world. And on the basis of this, she developed an alternative view of action. So actions are not just outputs of some co sort of causal chain. So they're not just endpoints of all um, these psychological states that I was uh, talking about. But they have an inherent rational structure. And with that, I do not mean that they um, are the result of our cold rational reasoning, but that, they, um, that if we act, we do something in order to do something else. So for example, if I want to make a curry, I cut an onion, and while I'm cutting this onion, I'm already in the business of making a curry. So it's not the case that my actions um, only form this causal chain of events. Uh, they also have this hierar hierarchical structure from um, a more abstract level to a more specific level. So they are in inherently rational. And they are directed at the good. And with the good, uh, she does not mean that we are always acting ethically or always doing the right thing. But when we act, there is some sense in which we think that what we're doing um, is, is useful or pleasant or valuable. And um, um, yeah, that determines what we do. So there is some sense in which we feel that our actions um, are good in a very broad sense. And another point is that we have practical knowledge of our actions. So this is kind of opposite to what a lot of um, psychology and neuroscience has been doing in relation to free will. Because what she emphasizes, and, and that's again a very practical uh, perspective on, on how we should think about actions and, and, and well, our psychology in general, is that we, um, when we act, so the one distinction between action and um, uh, behavior is that when I act, I have first personal knowledge of what I'm doing. And I don't need to observe myself or reflect on my mental states or see my environment to know what I'm doing. So for example, when I'm cycling to work and I would uh, meet a friend and this friend is asking, what are you doing? I can just immediately answer, I'm cycling to work. And that's um, yeah, just a very common sense perspective on action. And that offers an alternative perspective on how we should investigate and make sense of uh, acting and acting for reasons. And a final point is that actions take place in the world. So um, within this, this theory of planned behavior, we, s we tend to forget that possibilities and psychology are not just things that happen in our head, but that, in fact, have to take place in the world. So for example, if I don't have access to running shoes or if I don't have time to go for a run or, um, well, if I don't have the physical um, abilities to do something like that, I will not be able to train for a marathon. I have to, it has to take place in the world. Even going shopping to a supermarket, or, uh, to a supermarket it cannot um, uh, take place if there is no supermarket or no way to walk there. And this will be um, important for how we distinguish between, um, well, things we do out of free will and things that happen to us. So a good way to explain this is um, the movie The Shawshank Redemption. So I hope everybody who likes, this mo likes movies has seen it already, because otherwise it's um, a quite a spoiler alert, or it's just a spoiler. Well, you can close your ears and then it's only an alert. But um, So in this movie, Andy is um, in jail. And as far as we know, he's innocent. And um, he, well, he's, he's kind of the, the perfect inmate. He just uh, does what he's required to do. He's not any bother to anyone. And then at some point, they, he's suddenly gone. And then they realize, well, he was constantly digging a tunnel um, to escape. And we, it's not completely clear how long it took him, but um, at least it's clear that it took him, well, <laughs> a lot of time because he didn't have the material to, to um, dig the tunnel very quickly. So 
Um, this really illustrates this idea that he's constantly already uh, performing this action of escaping. So he's not just digging the tunnel, he does it in light of this larger action of trying to escape. So there is, there is this very clear hier hierarchical structure in um, the action that Andy is performing. Um, yeah, and he, well, it really fits with this idea that of practical knowledge that he was, well, the only one who knew what he was doing. So back to uh, free will. What, what follows from this? So what I um, try to show is that our actions um, are directed at the good in a very general sense, and that um, our conception of the good and our reflection of what we think is good to do um, has an influence on the specific actions that we perform. And one thing that follows from this is, well, depending on your definition of laws, that the actions we perform are not just the result of calculations in the past or things we can um, um, measure or, or, or that we can just add up. Um, they are in some sense the result of, of what we think the good is. So in that sense, there is a normative element. There is uh, uh, norms and values play a role in, which, in the specific actions we perform. And therefore, uh, my conclusion would be actions are not fully determined by laws. Even if we can cal calculate what the person will do next, we still do not fully understand it. And one example um, to make this clear is that, so think of baking pancakes. I think a lot of Dutch people are quite skilled probably at baking pancakes and we do it a lot. So we, we just um, make more or less completely the same movements every time we bake a pancake. But even if we would be able to completely calculate what the person will do, which movement the person will make, and which, with which pancake we would end up, we still would lose um, this dimension of the fact that what in the end the goal of this person is, is to bake a good pancake. So if anything goes wrong, or if there's a different pan, or there are different circumstances, it's this good pancake that is the starting point for um, the specific things the person does. So it, there's this... Um, yeah, normative dimension in the actions we perform. And, well, a different way to put it is that the end of the action forms the starting point of what uh, the person does. And then to um, uh, self-determination. Um, and, and there, I think the main point is that um, our actions are not just the result of static psychological states in us, but they are, to some extent, the result of our reasoning, our reflection on what good what is good to do. So um, I, I describe it as the normative why. So if we think about, all right, what should I do? We don't think about uh, the genes we have or, or our upbringing or our education. We think about, all right, is this, this something good to do? Is this something that I um, uh, want to do in my life and that, that in line with the direction I want my life to take? And in relation to that, the idea is that actions are formally caused by our practical knowledge and practical reasoning. So the form of the action, this rational structure of the action, it has this rational structure because we have this practical knowledge of what, for example, baking a pancake looks like, what, it, what the goal is of baking a pancake. And th that is crucial, so uh, I don't want to um, say that free will is the same as uh, conscious deliberation, because often we simply have this structure in mind. So if I'm baking a pancake, I don't have to uh, reflect, all oh, right, I was baking a good pancake, so now I have to make these movements with the pan, for example. I, um, um, I kind of have this, this automatic structure in mind, and when things go wrong, I can make them explicit. Or when someone asks me a question, what are you doing, I can make it explicit. But while baking the pancake, it's just, obvious to me that I have to make sure that it's brown and, and that it's uh, not liquid anymore and things like that. So in my view, self-determination and acting for reasons is acting in light of your conception what is good to do. And that's, I think, where free will should be located, in our ability to um, ask qu the question why in a normative sense and adapt our specific actions to uh, our answer to this question. And in that sense, I think this view is some sort of middle ground between a more compatibilist and a more libertarian view, because um, we should recognize that it makes no sense to ask further why questions uh, as soon as we um, 
think that what we do is good. So, for example, if someone would ask me why um, would you train for a marathon, um, and I give the answer, well, I'm just I just want to test whether I'm able to do it. And this person would ask a further why question, so why do you want to test yourself? For me, it might be the case that I don't, I don't feel that I have to answer this question. Because for me, in, in Anscombe's words, I end at a desirability characterization. So I already have answered the why question to such an extent that I um, f completely endorse what I'm doing. So there's this sense in which we can ask further why questions, but at some point, we just feel like this is just the way I want to live my life. This is what I care about. This is what I think is good to do. So these um, structures are different for everyone. And I think that's very interesting because we often tend to um, give causal explanation when someone answers why questions in a certain way. But for this specific person, it doesn't matter whether there's a causal chain because it's just um, in line with how this person wants to live uh, her life. So um, where then would the self-determination be in a psychological theory? Well, I think it would be here in, in the shape our action is taking. And I also think um, what's important to emphasize is that uh, if we take a more practical perspective on um, intentions and, and psychological states, for example, um, we should also recognize that an intention the way we commonly use it, and, and the, the most common way to uh, make sense of it, is not in terms of a psychological state. So if I tell you that I plan to run a marathon, um, and that I want to participate in September, and I um, suddenly uh, go to the bar every night and start smoking and things like that, you can genuinely say to me, well, you don't really have this intention. So having an intention is not just having a state in your mind. It means that you have to be committed to um, uh, doing what you do. There has to be some sort of um, um, disposition or, or some sort of pattern in your thoughts and behavior that really um, show that you have this intention. It's not just something that you find in your mind. And I think in that sense, self-determination can be found um, in different parts of this model, because also for our um, attitudes and for a subjective norm and for our intentions, we can ask the question why. So um, it's not the case that I suddenly wake up in the morning with, a, in, with an intention to run a marathon and then, well, reluctantly buy shoes and, and, and download um, a, a, and a program to, to be able to run one in September. I can critically reflect on these intentions and attitudes. And this critical reflection takes the shape of this normative why question of this question, do I think this is a good intention to have? Do I think this is a good attitude to have? So this dimension, I think, is uh, crucial when we do psychology and when we, um, um, yeah, also when we talk about free will and more responsibility. So um, finally, some um, science. So what does this all tell us about how to interpret um, uh, neuroscientific experiments on um, free will? So uh, actually, this whole discussion on free will and, uh, and, and science has started with Benjamin Libet's research. And Benjamin Libet um, um, learned from previous research that before we make a spontaneous voluntary bodily movement, we, um, there's this buildup of brain activity. So Libet was kind of uh, wondering how this would exactly um, or how this exactly could be in combined with having a conscious intention. So his idea was if this brain buildup of brain activity uh, precedes this conscious intention, then it would be a problem for free will, because then our brain would have decided what to do and not our conscious intention. So our conscious intention would be too late. So this, um, well, this is what he set out to do. So he asked participants to come to his lab, and these participants uh, their brain activity was measured. They were asked to uh, move uh, their wrist or push a button spontaneously without any planning. And at the same time, look at uh, an arrow on a clock and remember at which point they had this conscious intention or conscious urge to make the movements. Um, so these three um, 
sources of information um, uh, were combined, and well, with this as a result. So this is well why Benjamin Liebert's research still received well the, the attention to Benjamin Liebert's research is is, is diminishing, but it's it's a very um, good example in which um, we can show what the, the underlying uh, philosophical perspective, uh, which role it plays in the conclusions that are drawn. So for Libet, this was a big shock because Libet felt like, okay, this conscious intention is simply too late to um, um, determine what we will do because there's already this buildup of brain activity and the movements and the conscious intentions are in fact the result of a buildup of brain activity. And our conscious intention and movement are simply, or our conscious intention is simply too late to play any role in which movement we make. And now we can apply um, um, what we've been talking about previously. And that's that in Libet's experiments, there's only uh, the things he's measuring are only event causation and only why questions in this event causal sense. So he's only asking what's happening before uh, we make this bodily movement. And in fact, this idea of reasons, so um, thinking that something is better to do or thinking that something is good to do, is completely absent from the experiment. So just making a bodily movement or pushing a button when you um, uh, feel like it, um, has, there's no reason to do it sooner or later or anything else. So it's very likely that people just respond to having this urge and they don't have any reason to do something else. And in fact, if we would look at the experiments um, more closely and or <laughs> take into account more context, we see that uh, there is in fact uh, a why question as a final cause, which is, um, I can imagine, that these subjects want to be good subjects. They want to participate in the experiment to help Benjamin Libet uh, find out what he wants to find out. So the why in this experiment is um, kind of ignored because we zoom in too much on what's going on in the brain and the specific bodily movements. But in fact, the, the fact that this subject, that these subjects are making bodily movements, that they are reporting the, the um, a number on the clock and things like that is all the result of the fact that they want to be uh, that they aim to be good participants and and that they aim to contribute to the research. So um, the, the the aspect of, of freedom of, of acting for reasons is not as absent in Libet's experiment, but it's not taking into account either. So on this picture ultimate free will or something like that would not be uh, not being influenced by anything because, uh, well, not being influenced by anything doesn't bring you choices, doesn't bring you self-determination. What would be, what ultimate free will would be, and then I'm, I'm back uh, to Aristotle who um, um, uh, developed virtue ethics with this idea that, well, at the higher level we um, um, value friendship, for example, or justice, and the idea is that we um, use these more general values to perform more specific actions. So that's depicted in this um, illustration. So for example, I, I care about friendship, and how do I concretely um, implement this in my life? It's by cooking dinner for my friends, for example. Well, I'm cooking curry, and I'm cutting an onion. And in some sense, by cutting the onion, I'm already in the business of, um, well, valuing friendship or acting on the basis of what I think is good or, um, uh, yeah, friendship, what's important to me. And then the important point is also that we can keep asking these why questions. So we can keep asking, why do I care about friendship? Why now? Why with these people? And again, it's always this direction to, um, what is a good life? What do I think a good life looks like? And the answers to that question should trickle down to your more specific actions. And with this, I don't want to say at all that, uh, or I kind of want to emphasize that, um, well, free will is very, um, um, yeah, it comes in degrees and it's, it's not um, obvious that we have it. It takes a lot of uh, work and it takes a lot of luck as well to have the circumstances in which you can um, 
act on your values. And I think maybe that's also, well, the second important point that I um, want to make is that I think one of the reasons to, uh, for me to defend free will is to also emphasize that there are huge differences in the amount of control people have over their lives. So if we deny free will, we say, or if we say, well, uh, everything we do is just determined by uh, the past and the laws of nature, then we are all in the same boat. And I think reality shows that we are not all in the same boat. Some people have much more um, opportunity to um, shape their own lives and to um, determine the direction their lives is taking. So I think that's, a, that's an important um, well, reason to maintain some sort of account of free will. So I just want to emphasize some stuff. So, for example, being able to um, cook dinner for your friends, you need all kinds of uh, abilities, not only simply the reasoning ability to reason from, uh, all right, so I care about friendship, what should I do now? What does that mean for my life? But also, well, the, 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 the peace of mind to be able to cook dinner. Not everybody's able to cook dinner. And, um, well, this person has less of, or needs to do different things maybe in order to um, um, act on their values and, and maybe take, make more efforts. And another thing is the, the physical uh, limitations a person may have, so we all should, should take that into account. And I think what's mo most important for me is the fact that um, free will really uh, depends on the circumstances as well. So uh, you could, def uh, I think I would define um, free will as a power. So it's a power we all have, even when I'm asleep, I have the power to uh, act for reasons, even though I don't use it like um, a wine glass also has the power to break even if it's um, standing somewhere. But um, um, what's important is the extent to which we can exercise this power. And that really depends a lot on uh, the circumstances we live in and the abilities we have. And yeah, I think that that perspective should be um, emphasized and discussed in more detail. It can also be more um, play a more fundamental part in psychological research. All right. Thank you very much for your attention. That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for our upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. Thank you for listening.